This is Christine Maxfield, and you're listening to When in Rome from Compass Magazine. It is my absolute pleasure to bring you the brilliant Jason Cochran today. And I mean brilliant, and not just in travel, but also his insights about the entire media industry, plus he's a huge history buff. I'm thrilled that he and I share a common background as previous editors at Arthur Fromer's Budget Travel Magazine, and he has a big secret that I'm not going to divulge till the end of the interview. So listen to Jason's tips about traveling on a budget, not getting scammed abroad, what it's like to work for the legendary Mr. Fromer, and then I'll let you in on the news at the end. Stay tuned. How did you catch the travel bug from the beginning? That's a really good question. I think it's sort of hard to pinpoint the first moment. I think probably a lot of people will say that. I root it back to when I was able to begin traveling the way I wanted to. Mm-hmm. I guess in my 20s, I took you know a trip here, a trip there. You know, even 20 years ago, one of the magazines that I worked for would hire people for uh, you know a year or so and then furlough them so they wouldn't have to pay them benefits and then bring them back a few months later. Lots of huh. companies still do this. It's illegal in a lot of cases, but they, they still do it claiming that they, they need a downside. So anyway, I'd have a lot of times when I had three or four months off. Yeah. How am I going to fill these? I do a traveling. I'd say, okay, I've never been to Prague. I'll do that. Okay, I've never been to what? And finally, though, I was working for Entertainment Weekly, and we got three weeks of vacation a year, which you know, paid vacation was a luxury. I couldn't imagine. Right. Such. And so I decided I would really do it up. I'd use all the weeks, and I went to South Africa, and I just stayed there for the entire three weeks, which was sort of a, a great thing and a bad thing because I was in South Africa, and I thought to myself, oh man, I would just like. There's so many places in this world I'd like to see. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't a few more months after that when Mother Teresa died. Yeah. And I was watching CNN, and they showed you know, very wide shots of Calcutta and, and little tiny people running across the park to try to get to her funeral on time. And I thought to myself, I wonder what Calcutta's like. And I wonder, I wonder what, you know, come to think of it, Sydney is like. I thought, you know, I think it'd be fun to do all that stuff. I sort of set up my life. I was originally just going to go back to Cape Town for about four or five months. I thought if I'm going to do that, I have to get rid of my job. And if I had to get rid of my job, I should get rid of my apartment. And it just snowballed. Yeah. And once I'd saved enough money, I went out for about two years. So that's how it happened. Mm-hmm. I made room in my life for travel. And that's sort of when the travel bug essentially began, or at least when my career did. Well, and that's really just what it comes down to, isn't it? That you just have to make time. Yeah, you have to make time. Uh, well, you also have to make money often. I mean, even if you want right, to go that's budget. that's tricky. <laughs> yeah. I mean, nowadays, when times being so difficult for so many people... We sort of have to shift the way we perceive travel. A lot of us are even seeing our own states, our own cities, which I think is a great thing. I, I think we sometimes ignore all the things that are nearby and don't ever dig deeply until we go somewhere else. But, you know, there are whole worlds to explore just yeah. around you. If you don't have the money, you can really use this moment to sort of dig deep around your own universe. And it's still travel. It's still outside yourself. It's still... You know, even time itself, looking at history can be a form of of travel. Yeah, I was going to say that I've really enjoyed reading your historical travel pieces. It's been great. It's it's strange how I've evolved into doing a lot of that in the past few years. You know, as you probably know, know, the beginning of my travel writing career, I was much more budget travel. And it was telling people how to do something for themselves. I guess there's a connection with my being interested in, in historical travel and that it, it, I like people to, to discover things they didn't know existed. It's still sort of doing something for yourself that way. Mm-hmm. 
But it's true that, that history is just travel without a passport. And digging deep in the history of your own community or your own state or your own country is a form of travel you can do if you don't have much money. Mm-hmm. You know, because the money will come hopefully for all of us in a few more years. It'll be easier to travel mm-hmm. again. But in the meantime, there's a lot of layers to this onion of a country if you yeah. just care to peel them. <laughs> Sometimes they'll make us cry, but you know. <laughs> <laughs> but worth it. Yeah. <laughs> so how did you get your break in travel writing then? When I came back from my two years around the world, I mean, during which I'd, you know, I'd stopped in this city for you know, a few months and that city for a few months intending to write, and it was more like Isherwood. It was a lot, yeah. a little too much partying, I you think, never, going on. Yeah, you Didn't never really write. <laughs> anyway, I came back, and I, I just sent letters to everyone, you know, every travel magazine there wasn't, and I didn't hear anything for four or five months, and it was sort of a hopeless thing. And one day the phone rang, and it was Arthur Fromer's secretary wanted me to come in. Yeah. I mean, at the time, this is for Budget Travel Magazine. Mm-hmm. At the time, I had picked it up and put it down because I was the kind of budget traveler who went backpacking, mm-hmm. who you know, who cooked for himself at the hostel, and Arthur Fromer was the kind of budget traveler who thought of you know inexpensive air hotel packages or package yeah. tours or learning vacations. It was it was a, it was an older generation of budget travel essentially. Mm-hmm. But I guess he saw something he liked and he hired me and sort of trained me in that area of budget travel. Mm-hmm. as well. And I worked with Pauline Fromer at Fromers.com. We were a two-person team basically running all the editorial for that for a few years. And that's how I started doing what I call service journalism, you know. Yeah. It was the, the kind of writing I was doing, the kind of research I was doing was never about me. It mm-hmm. was about the person going to take the same trip that I did. And I was going to tell them how to do it and what pitfalls there were and how to save the most money. Because it was always almost a political ideal for us. I know it was for Arthur, and it was for me too. That you know, most Americans made very little money. The average income at that time was something like twenty-eight or thirty thousand oh, wow. dollars, which probably isn't far off from what it is even now. Mm-hmm. And most people thought that France was out of their clutches. They thought you know right. they would never be able to do these things. And if we could get people to travel, to open up their minds, to see things differently, it's something that Americans really need. Our culture is by nature stagnant, mm-hmm. you know, because we are so far away from the rest of the world that it is, and we only get two weeks of vacation, that's not even federally mandated, that it's very easy for us to develop an us versus them mm-hmm. of, you know, the rest of the world versus us because we have no personal experience in the rest of the world. So we believe that, and I still believe that when you, when you travel, it, it's very good for you in terms of your empathy, mm-hmm. and that can shape so much about the country, how it shape things about how you treat other people. It can shape public policy, and it just, it just there's a huge knock-on effect. So it was almost a political movement for us. I mean, uh, getting people to travel who didn't think they could travel could change their lives, even if they only did it once. Yeah, yeah. Well, once is enough if it does its job well. Yeah, know? yeah. So when were you at Budget Travel? What years? Let's see. My interview with Arthur. That's it's about 2000 until around 2005, I believe. But yeah, during those years, it was Fromers.com and it was mm-hmm. uh, Arthur Fromers Budget Travel. Now people just call it Budget Travel, but right. at the time, it, he was the man in charge. So it was Arthur Fromers Budget Travel, and we yeah. always made sure to say it. <laughs> yeah. Well, I love that we have that connection to BT. I was yeah. there 2008 to 2010. I but, just missed you, uh, which is a bummer. Yeah, I know. But I, I also miss that I didn't get to work with Mr. Fromer. What yeah, was that I like? I understand it, was a, it, it, was a, it changed budget travel yeah. over that decade, and it went from sort of a, a pseudo-political mandate mm-hmm. to kind of a more upscale experience, I think. I think the approximation of luxury on a budget became more of the, yes. the angle. And I was in some of my pieces recommending that people eat 
at active prisons in South Africa that huh. once housed Nelson Mandela. I found out you could go to the cafeteria and eat at one of these places huh. in the Winelands. So that's the kind of thing I, I was writing about, yeah. uh, and fearlessly, because that's the kind of thing Arthur thought was a, you know, a gas. But I guess in the, later on, when new editors took over, it became more mainstream American. Mm-hmm. Also, 9-11 had a, bit, a big effect on, I think, sure. on the magazine, because a lot of people ran away from travel and ran toward the us-versus-them fear model of mm-hmm. American culture. So it changed. And you know now we have the recession, I think, and, and plus the change in media, putting the nail in so many magazines. Uh, speaking of, yeah. It's not publishing. It's, it's online, it's which online. to me is like when a restaurant... You know, puts paper in the windows and says we're only renovating, which almost every, you know, when the restaurants close, they claim they're just renovating. And of course, they never reopen. Exactly. I wish them lots of luck. And you would think that, you know, in in a recession, that something like budget travel would do better than others. But it's always been really difficult to market saving money in general because advertisers are afraid of it because they want you to spend more money. That's right. Public relations people are scared of it. And often the people who want to save money aren't willing to spend. So it, there's sort of like three things going against anything in, in a budget. And plus, you know, the, the digital revolution, people are getting more information for free. Yeah. So the role of the expert, I think, is greatly diminished. Mm-hmm. But the role of the service journalists, I think, you know, what I do, the consumer reporting, is is more necessary now than ever because there are so many ways to go astray, to lose your money, to make a mistake Agreed. when there's not anyone actually vetting the information that's out there, not just in a, in, you know, in a hotel that you've reviewed, but even how you use the internet to book something. You know, this is so, there's so many pitfalls that because we're aggregating our information and crowdsourcing, it's so easy to, to get wrong. Exactly. And that's exactly what you're talking about at the New York Times Travel Show, the scams out there. Yeah. What are some scams that people should look for? I think it all kind of boils down to nowadays we trust what we see online so much because we're so used to it. Mm-hmm. Not just younger people who are so used to this information flying by them at light speed all the time, but older people who don't know that there's a lot of people out there and they're very sophisticated in how to trap you. So my boiled down advice is to work around, to check around whatever is presented in front of you. I'll give you an example. On Facebook, there recently there's been a spate of you know, Southwest Airlines free tickets. Click here. Yes. You allow the app. It grabs your information, and, and suddenly you've given yourself away. So why do the check around? I actually, you know, will contact Southwest directly saying, is this legit? Mm-hmm. And I contact their social media people and not their operators. Don't send them an email because their social media people are the ones who are really on top of these things. So people believe these things that are presented online as gospel and don't do the simple legwork of just picking up the phone and making sure it's real before they click the link. Mm-hmm. If you have a PC, especially if you get a junk email and you click the wrong link, it could download something to your computer without even knowing it. I guess that's yeah. less the case with a Mac. So people were clicking, they're click happy. They clicked it before they've known, oh, I shouldn't have clicked it. I just, it's I, so quick I just to did do that. it. <laughs> yeah. But especially, you know, Facebook is pretty bad because people are allowing these apps access to their friends, and that's when you get locked out of your account, and they, people get emails sent to them claiming you're strung up in London and need money, you know, those kinds of yeah. scams that are going on. Hmm. Huh. But I've been doing a lot of other, you know, basic consumer reporting as well. After budget travel, I went to uh, Wallet Pop, which was an AOL yeah. consumer blog. Okay. And so I did a lot more, you know, credit card scams and which light bulb should I buy now that the light bulbs are new, you know, but they're kind of all tied together. You know, travel, we, we tend to look at it within a bubble as if it's something that exists sort of apart from all these other ways we spend money. Mm. I think the lessons that you can learn as a consumer reporter in general inform travel because the methods are pretty much the same across the board. And the lessons you learn from travel, of course, don't just stay within the realm of adventure or inspiration. They can inform the rest of your life as well. But 
we've, we tend to bubble-wise travel a little bit, I think. Agreed. And then I know that you have a background as well in guidebooks with the farmers. San Francisco, London, Disney? Yeah, those are the three. Okay. And so, several of them had several versions. Okay. Now, this is something I know nothing about, even as far as how do you go about researching all of the places you recommend in these guidebooks? Yeah. I would go to a destination for about two months mm-hmm. and just hoof it. Really. Hmm. And it's as simple as that. I mean, I would get recommendations from people who I trusted and what they've seen and what they've done. But a lot of it also is just sort of discovery, just walking around, eating a lot of bad meals that you never end up covering. Yeah. Going to all of the attractions to find out what the pitfalls are. So you go left, not right. Go at this time of day, not this time of day. And then you get another two or three months just writing the thing. It's a lot of work. I mean, yeah. it's sad that it's sort of a dying genre. I was going to ask you that. Um, Everything's going online now. Yeah, and, and, and most of the online players aren't really hiring people to do this kind of work. It's all crowdsourced. It's all people in the destination or, you know, hmm. cherry-picked from Zagat's or the Thorn Tree or something. There's very few companies, or I should say a diminishing number of companies, that actually pay someone to go out and check all this information themselves. Hmm. It's extremely time-consuming, and it's not lucrative. It's yeah. just, I personally really love being able to know something deeply. Mm-hmm. That's really what the main appeal was for me. You know, it's not something that, I mean, some people, I guess, could sustain themselves year round, but you're going to be working like a devil and, yeah. you, and it probably isn't going to be good for your health because it could be a good 17, 18 hour day sometimes because not only do you have to do all the attractions during the day and places to eat, but then you have to do nightlife. You have mm-hmm. to, you know, do day trips. I mean, it just it gets really exhausting. And when I actually sit down to write, I think I'm just as merciless on myself. I'll go 10, 12 hours and forget to eat sometimes when I write. I just get in that zone, you know, of of knowing something deeply and wanting to get across. So what are you doing now? Because it seems like you're you're, you're everywhere. You're on TV. You're writing. This is it. This is how our economy has (laughs) fragmented. I think so many of us are now earning our livings freelancing or, you know, sort of ad hocing it. Financial institutions, lenders, you know, resume readers aren't haven't really caught up to that reality yet. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I write a lot for the New York Post. I've been yeah. for them in the travel section, which is not political, for about ten years. And I still write for you know travel and leisure, and I write for a Swedish magazine called Scanorama. I, I get around, and I of course do my consumer segments now and then for CBS, mm-hmm. both on the early show and now CBS this morning. And I used to have a, a, a weekly live segment by satellite on Fox Philly who talk about, you know, light bulbs and things like that. Right. Hilarious. Person in my ear asking me questions about what cheap butter to buy. Oh. Um, <laughs> and working on my own stuff as well because, you know, I think because of that freelancing, you know, segmentation that's happening, I think a lot of us are learning how to realign ourselves, you know, diversify ourselves. I'm going back to a lot more of the historical travel and I almost even hesitate to call it travel, but it is because you have to it go is, to learn yeah. about these things. Um, So I'm doing a lot more of that and doing my own projects, hopefully building on a large book. Really? Yes. I was going to ask you that. So I'm juggling. I can't. My agent gets really upset when I talk about it. But um, (laughs) yeah, I have been spending the last year or so researching something that I am excited about. Okay. Historical. Yeah, historical. Along the lines of, you know, all the the kinds of travel writers I personally like. Mm -hmm. Bill Bryson, Sarah Vowell. Mm -hmm. Tony Horowitz to a degree when he's funny, because sometimes his last one on John Brown was not a funny book. It was just a history book. Mm-hmm. But I, that's the kind I, I really love. I'm not a fan, never have been, of this sort of self-indulgent travel story of like, look what I did. I climbed this and I did that and I learned this. And I, mm-hmm. although it's all necessary and it has its fans, 
I've always sort of like had to close them either out of jealousy that I wanted to do it or out of I really don't careism. Yeah. What I what I really love to do the most and what I think I'm best at is telling people that things they didn't know before, which is why I love doing budget travel so much because mm-hmm. it, w- it was an alternative, a valid alternative that people really needed to hear about mm-hmm. and why I do the kind of uh, history writing I do now, which tends to be stuff that's been sitting under our noses all along. We just sort of never knew existed or, or uh, things that have been overlooked or forgotten. Sort of like as Bill Bryson does, if people know or Sarah Vallon know mm-hmm. their work. So it, one seems to flow into the other, but when I say I'm a history writer, it doesn't seem right. When I say I'm a travel writer, it doesn't seem right. I'm sort of both, I suppose. <laughs> well, make sure to let me know when you can talk about... Of course. This is going to be great. Yeah, you know, and it's, it's almost necessary. I think, you know, we've, as, as everyone knows, we've had a huge revolution in, in travel writing in the last 10 years. I picked the worst time to become one. Now, some people think it's a democratization that's happened with all the, you know, the many blogs you can put up, and to a degree that's true, but if you want to make a living out of it, we've had a great elitism rise, mm-hmm. especially in paid travel writing. This is for many reasons, and one is the shrinking outlets, the shrinking budgets at those outlets. You know, I know major newspapers and major magazines that will not pay expenses. That's right. And yeah. so what happens is you have people, basically travel writing is becoming for the wealthy. Yeah. People who are already going can afford to go. This not only affects the people who are able to be heard in a major outlet, but it also affects whether they can make a living. It also affects what they're covering mm-hmm. because a really wealthy person's not going to stay at the hostel, not going to find out where you need to go for a cheap bed in Porto. They're going to stay at the fancy place. Yeah. Most likely. Yeah. Every now and then you'll find somebody who's an adventurous soul, but they may not be the one that a newspaper or magazine wants to publish either because they're trying to please high end advertisers in most cases. Low-end advertisers don't advertise much or don't need to because they get their customers online. And that's what's interesting then as well when you're not allowed to take press trips. Yeah. You know, that's a big, a really important debate. I've always sort of come down firmly in the middle. Yeah. (laughs) You know, I felt, yes, there are plenty of travel writers out there. And when I was an editor at Budget Travel, they pitched me daily who were in it for the trips. Mm -hmm. And it's not discouraged. I know there are some young bloggers who are pitched by PR people hoping Mm -hmm. to, you know, take a free trip and get on your blog. And I do think it's going to be necessary to a degree, and always has been, as long as you know budgets at the publications aren't big enough. But it's really about access to me. No one complains when the White House press corps gets that access in, in the White House room, because if they ask offensive questions, as Helen Thomas did a few years ago, she got mm-hmm. put in the back of the room and she lost yep. her access. So it's no different, but no one says that they're softballing to the presidents very much, mm-hmm. but they accuse travel writers of being on the take. That's because right. travel writers, they've always been in Section D or E, they're sort of, you know, the, the bastard children of the newspapers were, at least they were, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and the real journalists were in, you know, 1A or 1B. Mm-hmm. But I have always felt, and I still do, that if you have a very strong editor, and a principal editor, and I've worked with a few, that they have a good idea of what their writers are doing. They know if their writers are on the take. They know if they have an opinion. Mm-hmm. I, I've heard from a few PR people that they're, <laughs> they're a little scared of me. <laughs> I don't know if this is true because I'm not a PR. But, like, because I have been known to just sort of say this sucks if it sucks. That, you know, it's part of it. There are some writers who are not afraid to say good or bad what yeah. it is. And I think as writing changes in the major outlet, that becomes rarer. Mm-hmm. Agreed. Yeah, and so I, I do worry about that. I think it's also, you know, as, as the bloggers need to brand themselves in order to get enough of a following to make a healthy living, they often also have to sacrifice themselves to some degree. And they also go after each other 
a little bit more than I would like. Maybe it's a little kumbaya, but I'd like to see the travel people you know, get together and support each other. We all should be learning. We all should be traveling. There's enough world out there for everybody. Yeah. But but there's been some some crazy infighting in the past few years. Really? Well, How, you know, you me. can you can see. I'm not going to name names, but no, you see no. some of the the travel bloggers going after each other. That's or just you have ridiculous. Done. But you've seen it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I just like it. Uh, can we all get along? I know. <laughs> <laughs> all right, Jason, are you ready for your Traveler's 10 questions? Oh, sure. That'll be fun. All right. So what travel book makes you want to pack your bags and hop on a plane? I, don't, I have several answers to this. Well, one of them, and this is, God, it's such a cop-out. I hate it's coming out of my mouth. But <laughs> the, what is it called? The, 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 the book where they're flying over the earth, the earth from above. It was a series of photographs, a big coffee table book about 10 years ago, The Earth huh. from Above. It was by, I think, this French photographer. And there, were not, there was no real text except just telling you what you were looking at. So there'd be a tropical island from above or, oh, wow. you know, Kathmandu from above or different places. And you could sort of, sort of see the layouts of the various places. Not much text to sort of interpret it for you. But I think books without interpretation are the ones that sort of excite me. That sounds beautiful, actually. And, you know, I've never seen that. Yeah. It was a big, like, a page-a-day calendar and a coffee table book, but this was, like, 10 years ago, and I think the fad passed, but I kept mine. Nice. <laughs> what destination do you consider a best-kept secret? Oh. Which will no longer be a secret after you say it. <laughs> yeah. Again, like, five things roll in my head. I mean, one is what I want to go back to the most is Namibia. Ooh. And it's really not that difficult to get to. It's just expensive to get to. It's just you have to fly into Cape Town and, and then jump up to uh, Vintook. It's the least populous in terms of density country in Africa. Mm. It's right on the, the cold current of the Atlantic as it sweeps up the coast towards Angola, which means it's a desert. There's almost no, there's almost no vegetation, huh. almost no moisture. And I think more people should go. I think Brad and Angelina had a baby there in Swakopmund <laughs> or something like that. So I'd say maybe a bit closer to home. I've read about it a few times. There's this place about an hour north of Orlando, and it's called Casadega. Have you ever heard of this no. place? No. <laughs> Basically, in the late 1800s, there was this huge occult movement uh, this, like, of, of seances and mediums. And, and there's a town in upstate New York near Buffalo called Lilydale. Only a medium is allowed to live there. Only psychics can live there. There's a little picket fence, you know, and you can get thrown out if you're not very good. But you, they'll let you in, and you can get your readings. Well, a, a break-off splinter group in the 1870s, I think, decided that they were tired of Buffalo Winters. Who can blame them? And we're going to find something in Florida, thank you very much. And so they, that's how Casadega was formed. And it's a town of psychics underneath these beautiful Spanish moss trees. You go in, you pay about 30 or $40 for an hour's reading. You wander amongst the, you know, the kind of like that jungly central Florida thing yeah. that, it, that's kind of so fascinating. It's sort of trashy and fascinating and um, it. <laughs> bizarre it's just distinctly american and i can't believe more people don't know about it i have no they've idea they've got a haunted this. hotel every time you try to take a picture in the lobby you end up with an orb of some kind there's you know Has shops where you can buy you? stones yeah i have had pictures not come out at this uh, Did hotel. Did you have a reading done? I always have a reading done. I actually now have a guy in Casadega, which sounds even stranger. But <laughs> he always says to me, I don't, you know, you don't say a thing about yourself. He doesn't know anything about yourself. I just walk in and he's instantly telling me about my, you know, my ancestors and naming their jobs, things that are not available online for any cheating psychic to look at. So yeah, I have an interesting time there. Can I have the name of your guy after this yeah. interview's done? Sure, absolutely. All right. <laughs> what site should be seen at least once in a lifetime and why? India. I really believe, I don't think you can be a good Westerner without seeing how one sixth of the world's population lives. Yeah. And not just, you know, the poverty is really kind of easy to accumulate if you're not too careful, but also their attitude. Because I think their attitude is it's not like the Western attitude where we want what the other guy has. 
or a lot of them are born believing that this is who I'm supposed to be. Mm-hmm. I think there's something beautiful in the acceptance. This is who I am. You know, mm-hmm. I don't have much, but I'm happy about it. And I, I just think all combined, there's a lot to teach us wasteful Americans who, yeah. if we don't have cable TV, think we're living in poverty. Mm-hmm. Oh, my eyes were opened in India. Mm-hmm. I was there, one of my volunteer assignments in 2011, it was in India. And I thought that I knew the world. I didn't know the you world don't. until I visited. And it's even different from China. You know, yeah. China has a lot of that, but it also has a huge scale of wealth. That mm-hmm. India is just sort of—it's a lot more of a salad. Mm-hmm. You know. And I tell you, after my first trip to India, I was nauseous for a month. I never got sick, sick because I ate carefully. But I just there was just like just the thought of India because it's an, an ongoing assault. It's an opera that never mm-hmm. ends. And I was just like, Ugh, I can't. Uh, I can't even think about ever going back there. And about two weeks later. The itch came back. Really? And it's, I think it's, I guess it's like having a baby for women. You know, the, yeah. they go through all this pain of childbirth. They can never do that again. And then <laughs> you know, they see it coo and they start to go and they forget the pain. They want to, that's sort of like going to India. India's like childbirth and completely worth it. And it stays with you until you die. Right. Uh, what and where was the most memorable meal you've had while traveling? Hmm. I'm trying to answer these as you ask them to see what pops in my head. And I'm thinking of crocodile skewers in Kakadu National Park huh. in Australia's Northern Territory and wow. didn't care for it. I can't It's sort of like fishy why. chicken. Yeah. It's really, ugh, not very nice. Okay, well that's memorable. Yeah, I guess it is. I guess it is memorable. You know, but also I'm, you know, I have a happy meal. People always think of the weird stuff, but I'm not Andrew Zimmern. I just think of the happy times that are just completely anonymous and I didn't know at the time was one of the best moments of my life. Yeah. That's travel and a lot of it happens in retrospect when you realize what it mm-hmm. means to you. It was just, I had this little meal at an outdoor stall in Malacca, Malaysia, you know, plastic chairs, noodles from a cart, you know, yeah. you know, humid as hell. I just wanted to sit down because I was, I was slippery with sweat and it was great. It was kind of perfect happiness because it was simple. And I don't even remember exactly what I had, except it was some sort of curry noodle. And, you know, I just, I keep wanting to go back to that moment that I'll never be able to go back to. And I just <laughs> had to find a new one. Uh, what was your most nerve wracking experience on the road? And how do you think other travelers could avoid it? Ooh, nerve wracking experience. That's another really challenging one because I'm thinking of the extreme. I'm thinking of the time my boat was attacked by a hippopotamus in Botswana. This sounds really pretentious. No, but that's actually but that's, <laughs> very There is no way to avoid this. I mean, but, no, but we were just, we were going, it was the Okavanga Delta. We were going, it was crocodile infested on either side and we had a little, you know, canoe and a local guy. You know, Botswana has been very good about maintaining their tourism. They're really responsible locals. This is their business. They bring tours through. Yeah. And they were pulling our boat. They were, yeah, we were bringing our boat through. And there are crocodiles on the other side. And just as we went past this one little section, we lurched forward because a hippo would come right up, oh right behind gosh. us. We all looked at, you know, the guide to make sure that we shouldn't be panicking, but he had panic in his eyes. You which should wasn't panic bad. with hippos. <laughs> and we said, are we going to be okay? And all he said was, not good. <laughs> oh. Because if we had been knocked over, either the hippo would have gotten us or yeah. the crocs would have. But there's no way to tell someone to avoid that. No. And I refuse to tell people to stay home because no. that kind of thing doesn't normally happen, which is why I'm talking about it right now. It's actually a really incredible story, though. Yeah, yeah. And it's another again, it would a, be amazing. a retrospect moment. Like, exactly. I realize now how close I came to biting it. Yeah. But at the time, it was like, ooh, hippo, where's my cat? Wait a minute. You know? Yeah. Well, that's the animal that everybody warns you about. You don't think of as being one of the most dangerous animals, right? In yeah, it Africa. Kills and it most kills the most people, yeah. except for, this is like a fun trivia question. Except for the mosquito. Okay, if you consider that's a mosquito exactly an animal. Point. <laughs> <laughs> what passport stamp still eludes you? I have Israeli passport stamps, and I was told huh. not to. 
Okay, they said that you can't get into some countries with them. Of course, that's true. So yeah, I'd like to go to Syria. I guess I'll wait for that because I've heard yeah. nothing but good things. Yeah. About the I've country. I've heard that as well. Hopefully, there's a lot of it left mm. after I, all this. Agreed. I was in Jordan. And I was going to go to Syria, and I should have while I had the chance, because right now I can't. Yeah. I mean, it, it's it's strange how doors are opening and closing geopolitically all the yeah. time. Mm-hmm. You pass through one, and you and you and there's certain places that, you know, you just won't be able to pass back anytime soon, or mm-hmm. other places that you never thought you'd be able to go, and then here you are. Exactly. So I guess for every one we lose, we gain another one, and hopefully it'll always be like that. Did you get your Israeli stamp directly in your passport? I did. Did they ask you if you, you know, wanted it on a piece of paper? They, I didn't. I, you know, they I, asked me that, they, and I'm like, no, I do thought, it. <laughs> I heard that they said it would, that they would eye you funny if you asked that. Oh, really? That. But also, I was coming in from the gate that's on the east side of Jerusalem, so I had to sort of like go through some occupied territories. Okay. And they already quizzed me hard as it was, because okay. you know I had this look that could pass for anything, and you know, I'm a guy, mm-hmm. and so... I just decided to make it easy. And I think there was a part of me that was indignant. I'm like, you know, this is my damn passport. Yeah. I go around the world. I want to, you know, I've been there and I want, and I don't care what I've been, you know, yeah. I'm very obnoxious. <laughs> uh, and I was told it would keep me out of other countries like Malaysia, but it didn't. Huh. Yeah. But now that's in an old passport, so I don't have to worry about that oh, anymore. But it's good to know for me because I still got a couple more years on my passport and I've got that stamp. Do they give a passport stamp at Antarctica? I don't know. I haven't been. No, neither have I. I wonder. Huh. So that would elude us if there if it exists. All right. Well, well, let's check back in with each other. Yeah. Okay. Uh, what is your most cherished souvenir and why? I have this green hand-carved truck. It almost looks like some Boy Scout made it for the Pinewood Derby. And I bought it at a stall in Victoria Falls, Zimbabwe. And I bought it. And a little kid, he maybe four years old, runs over to me. And he didn't know much English but he could say motor. I guess that's the name of a, a truck from 100 years ago, by the way, and at least in, in like England and here. But he was calling him a motor, and he, was, he, he started to cry, holding his hands out, like, you know, daddy, daddy. Motor, motor, motor. He wanted the car I had just bought. So this, the, the, this is the truck I didn't give to the little kid. <laughs> but I, my antenna are always up, like, what am I being scammed? I'm a New York yeah. City person now. I'm like, yeah. oh, this kid, this is what he gets the motor back. He sold to someone. I mean, right. this is what I was thinking. And I, because you're not always sure what the real story is and whether or not it's really, <laughs> that's awful. But I did, I kept it. But I remember, you know, I remember my, and another, I, I also have a, I pulled over on the side of the road on a different trip in Swaziland because there was this kid who was like 13 or 14 who was selling his carvings that he was making by chopping wood. And then I think burning like leopard spots on the chopped uh-huh. cats that he was making with a cigarette or something like that. And I, I bought one off of that kid and it's lopsided. And it's like true folk art. Yeah. Like he was trying so hard and I love it. It's one of my favorite uh, items in my entire house. I think that if there's a fire, I'm going to grab it. Mm-hmm. And he signed the, the bottom of it because I asked him to because I wanted to know the person who made it. And he was thrilled. And it's Dr. Mazuku. Doctor. His name is Doctor Mizuku, and I have his cat, and I just I adore it. That's super cool. I like the handmade stuff. Yeah. Well, what's the most interesting custom or tradition you discovered abroad, and did you bring it back home? I guess a lot of people will say food on this, but I think I love the idea of handing a business card with both hands, and especially receiving oh, it with yeah. both hands, which is Northern Asia. Yeah. People don't even know you're really doing it, but it does send a subliminal message of respect uh-huh. and you're happy to receive that. So I actually re- especially receive business cards with both hands whenever I'm able to. I love that. But I just don't tell people I'm doing it. I think it does send a message. It does. If I don't like you, it's just you're here. Right. <laughs> <laughs> What's your biggest piece of advice for aspiring travelers? You can. 
I, I think a lot of people love to think of, this is actually not just about travel, it's life in general, but people like to think of excuses when they're afraid of something. Mm-hmm. The hardest thing about deciding to travel, even if it's for a week somewhere, is just deciding to travel. Yeah. The travel itself is pretty easy. There's always someone around who's going to help you. But making the decision is the hardest thing to do. Mm-hmm. And so once you make that leap, everything else falls in place. And when push comes to shove and it's all finished, you'll find the travel was not a waste. Mm-hmm. Even if you don't think you can do it well, even if you don't do it well, it's still not a waste. Agreed. As long as you eat carefully, everything's going to be great. Mm-hmm. What's the most profound lesson you've learned around the world? I think that's one of them. Like everything is going to be okay. Mm-hmm. You know, I think it's, it's really easy to get depressed or upset or anxious in our everyday lives yeah. because we're sort of living in this tiny little binary system. But the minute one you go somewhere, you're on a you're on a beach or on a mountain, you start to realize how petty everything in your life sort of is, and how mm-hmm. it's an artificial construct designed to sort of keep you in your hamster wheel, whether you design design the wheel or someone designed it for you. And I've always thought that if I ever got in the position like where I was so upset that I wanted to end it all, and I've never felt this, but if I ever did, it's easy to to snap out of that if you go somewhere. Yeah. So I kind of feel like as long as there's travel and as long as I can do it cheaply, there's always going to be an escape from whatever quote-unquote miseries exist. So I think that's one of the most profound lessons. I think also a, a large degree of empathy, I would like to think, I have learned from travel and, and realizing that my way is not the only way, this culture's way is not the only way. Mm-hmm. And And the differences don't just exist geographically, they exist in terms of time. So I think if any of us were put in a time machine back to, you know, 1920s America, 1840s America, it would be no different from getting on an airplane and going to a foreign country. Mm -hmm. I sort of call this sort of like a temporal superiority, this belief that where we are right now is, it must be the best. We know more than anyone ever did. I think travel has taught me to try to see things always from others' points of view, even if you're reading a history book and trying to understand why they did the stupid or great things that they did even then. So that it helps me, I think, be a better empath, if that's the right word. Mm -hmm. That sounds like the X-Men, better at empathy. (laughs) Well, Jason, this is wonderful, and I really wish you the best of luck on your next venture that you can't talk about yet, but you will soon. Thanks. Thanks a lot. Great to talk to you. And now I can divulge that he is the new editor-in-chief of Fromers.com, plus he's written two new guidebooks that will be the flagship publications of Arthur Fromer's relaunch of his series, the first under his direct editorial control in decades. Mr. Fromer's new direction for guidebooks will be under $10, less cumbersome, and more opinionated. And I'm simply thrilled. So make sure to check out the new Easy Guide series, especially Jason's London guidebook due out in November, and his Walt Disney World Orlando guidebook in January. And follow along on his adventures at www.jason-cochran.com. So congrats, Jason. And until next time, get out there and set the world on fire.